My mom was a librarian, you know, so when I was at school, like then I kind of grew up in the library with her and on the weekends we would go to the public library. This is Zion Khan. Like her mother, she's a librarian. So water, you must understand, we think of it and we talk about water as if water is these days a commodity, right? But almost as if there's more, what's the word I'm looking for, is life, as if water is not alive. But her library contains living things. Zion Khan is a seed librarian and seeds need water. And you quantify that animal and humans and plants and all these things, insects, these are all alive. Yet water is not alive. But this is not the truth and this is not the case. Because clearly the narrative has been... You know, the stories of water and the movement of water that exists throughout the city, and obviously in all indigenous spaces, in all cases where people are hyper-connected to water. podcast is brought to you by Jojo, a proud supporter of South Africa's water activists and a proud supplier of water solutions for a better quality of life. By protecting our most precious resource, Jojo's quality products help to safeguard the well-being of people, communities and the environment and the people working tirelessly to protect it. This is For Water For Life, the podcast that's hyper-connected to water. It tells the extraordinary stories of ordinary people who've made it their mission to preserve, purify, and protect the water supply where we live, in a complicated, water-scarce and unequal country called South Africa. I'm Kukule Tumtlungu, and as always, I'm joined by Sekwetlane Pamodi. So being a seed librarian is just one of the things that Zayan does. She's also an academic, a grower, an activist, as well as an artist. In between, she's an organizer in the slow food movement and a part-time nursery manager. I guess we could call her a renaissance woman. Indeed. Basically, her work connects indigenous ways of knowing and doing to more modern ways of living and being. One of the ways that she does this is through the Apocalypse Pantry, which is a collaborative educational project exploring the interplay between food, survival and happiness in an urban Armageddon. And naturally, all of it has one thing in common, and that's water. From inside the cable car that's veering towards the sheer sandstone cliffs of Table Mountain, you can turn back and see Cape Town resting in a bowl along a great curve of a bay where the Indian and Atlantic Oceans meet. From a boat in the harbour, though, through the glint of the sun on the water, the city's famous mountain appears to rise straight up from the sea, an ancient being. So Table Mountain, around 5 million years ago, used to be an island, right? So all the surrounding areas where the water table is much higher and kind of the table that's become so, you know, famous over the millennia, actually, used to just rise up from the sea, which I think also speaks to this word, Kamisa. The trendy Cape Town city bowl that's so loved by tourists was once occupied by Huna pastoralists as well as sand hunter-gatherers who moved along the coastline. We're talking about some of the first people ever. So as an ancestral legacy of our human species, of our humanity, 
This is one of the origin of species down here in the southwestern Cape. And so the relationship to man and the relationship to understanding things like water is ancient, right? And in that time of five million years ago, there was a lot, a lot of biodiversity, a lot of moving, stampeding herds. There was a lot of them, and we used to have our own species of bear, if I'm not mistaken. There used to be a short-necked giraffe, all of these things in, in these prehistoric times. And so Table Mountain has always known the sea. Table Mountain's feet have always been in the sea. And the sandstone genetic kind of complexity that this mountain range is, you see, the way that the water can move through this mountain, even in the time of droughts. And Kamisa, it means, or it has come to mean, the place of sweet waters. And we talk about the multitude in our rivers and streams that flow through the mountain uh, systems and throughout what's now the city. And as a system of sweet water, as opposed to the brackwater or opposed to salt water of the sea. So it's beautiful water that is actually quite sweet. It's delicious. And it's also one of the reasons why the Cape has become so famous, I guess, throughout the years and the recent, like, you know, hundreds of years and maybe even longer than that to passers-by, to trading ships, to visitors, because it was an immutable landscape where the water was drinkable, especially if you've been at sea for many months. And so the state of sweet waters and the name Kamisa, it really speaks to the people and their relationship with this landscape. One of the reasons this matters is because Cape Town is a city caught in a devastating drought cycle. In 2017, dams were so empty and taps running so low that a date for the end of the city's water had been set. It was called Day Zero. And it became so clear in the droughts that have recently rocked the city because if you had access to the mountain and you could travel to the mountain and be at the mountains physically, there is this, you know, you go to the mountain and the mountain is pouring water, millions and millions of liters, kiloliters. And you could literally put your tongue to the rock and it would be sodden with water gently falling. And so to me, this imagery of this massive hard rock face that's millions of years old actually becomes a kind of a sponge, gently working water up and releasing it and cycling it through its massive filtration system. Zayan says the mountain's water then flows into the city in the form of rivers. But these were closed over or converted into canals by Cape Town's colonial rulers. Much of the mountain's water now runs unseen into stormwater drains and into the harbour. So Zayan says there are lessons in this history that we can learn from. Right, because the first people were most likely also attracted to the area because of a huge variety of edible bulbs, many of which are probably extinct now. Most of the indigenous forests on the slope of Table Mountain were also chopped down, and this matters, of course, because of biodiversity. In the week that we're preparing this podcast, the United Nations released its fifth Global Biodiversity Outlook Report. Not one of the targets set around the world 10 years ago had been met. In fact... Some places went backwards, and this matters because biodiversity, which is the variety of species in an area, ensures sustainability for all life forms. So if you remove some species from the chain, others will suffer, and with them, so will the rest of us. 
its huge biodiversity of species that exists within this gentle ecoclimate. It's such a thin space compared to the landmass and compared to the ocean. It's so hyperdiverse. And the kind of diversity that we've seen at the coastline is some of the most diverse spaces in the whole world. The Feinbos Kingdom is so hyperdiverse. I mean, I suspect that's because, you know, the mountain was underwater. You know, the mountain had its feet underwater and the rising out of the ocean, in my opinion, um, or in my experience, it's sort of where life has always been striving and being very biodiverse. So because of the coastal area, when maybe you could put your, your hand, your real hand down, and under your hand could be thousands of different species of things in the ocean. And a lot of things that we've never even met yet, you know, things that are so microscopic. Which is, I guess, where the seed librarian and Zion comes into the picture, gathering seeds of all these different plant species. And then growing them herself to study. Ah, such a happy space for me. To be a seed librarian is to be a custodian of, you know, a certain collection. But collection is the wrong word, like a certain grouping of seeds. So, as the story goes, on the slopes of Table Mountain, in the middle of Cape Town, is some land that is being occupied by a farming community. You know, so one year, there was a threat of forced removal. I mean, all, you know, the friends of this, of this piece of land decided that we should do a mass occupation, but do it through the form of a market, right? So... Our contribution to that was, okay, let's like set up a seed table. Yeah, yeah, let's set up a seed table. It was a good idea. We had sort of a kind of a Facebook event and threw it out there for everyone to see and just be like, listen, we've all got these seeds that we've like, you know, in our groups of friends and people who are active in food. The people who are out there must come with all the seeds and we're going to do free, you kind know, of swap, share, exchange, meet some people, make some friends. That's exactly what we did. And we, we propped up the seed table and it was so successful. People came from all over the city. I mean, also like people that none of us like personally had even met, but they knew about us because of this Facebook event and they were seed people. Can I tell you the kind of different bodies that arrived to give seeds? The kind of people who are working with seed. It's not, you know, the farmers and the gardeners. It was all kinds of people. It was such an eye-opener for me. You know, I'd been working with seed from a very, like, firstly from a horticultural perspective, but then very much from a sociopolitical perspective because of all the patent drives, you know, and GMOs and stuff like that. And in fact, this is how seeds became the subject of Zayan's PhD research. And then the kind of reflecting on the seeds that they'd left us after they'd left. So one would expect that maybe people are, you know, going to bring like agricultural seeds or that you can kind of grow in your home, right? And maybe there's going to be some carrots, some kale, some peas, that sort of thing. But they were like different seeds from like cut flower production. There were different tree seeds, different indigenous tree seeds. I mean, there was even seeds that were over 20 years old, you know, and actually, you know, like... Obviously, most of the seeds at that stage like, in that packet died, but I managed to recover two of them out of the 40s. So it was a very interesting exercise. I mean, so there's this really nice cross-section of people who are working with seed because, you know, because of their gogos, because of their 
mothers teaching them or because they grew up in the city and wanted to learn more about plants. I mean, there were like all these different kinds of intersections of people who come from academic spaces, who come from much more rural spaces, people coming from the high mountains, city areas, people coming from the locations, all kind of people in a city, you know, and, and, and seed was just bringing them all together. How the seed became this neutral space and not just a neutral space, but like a neutral space of inspiration. I mean, I've been working with quite a few artists with this library and we've come to learn that people aren't archiving in a way that I'm choosing to archive this library, you know? So we've got seeds you can make musical instruments with. We've got seeds that can be used to make jewelry. The seed is such an like, interesting motif, if I can call it that. It's such like a pig in our connection to land. And I have to think about the water that supports this life force. We have to think about all the other species that, you know, become dependent on this seed. The insects, the mycelium in the ground, the people who will eat it, the recipes that may come from that, you know. I'm such a firm believer that, uh, you know, there's so much invisible force at play in the world, you know, in the universe and from ancestral presence in this time-space. We are the seed, Bafasi. When I die, I'm going to be the seed of the spirit. Aha! Of course, this is Makazi Bompateleni from the organization Zumo Lamobo, the voice of all creation, who we visited in Limbobo. For Makazi and other vendor traditional healers, seed plays many roles. For us to understand this, Food in the holistic way, seed in the holistic way. That is, food is not for feeding stomach and hungry. It's more than that. Seed comes first for rituals. All our seed, seed for us vendor people, they work when you are born, when you go to the initiation school, Musa, when you go to the circumcision here. In vendor when the boys come back, we shower them by seeds when they come back from forest. When you get married, your wife has to be blessed by seed. When your baby is born, there is a ritual which connects with the seed, which is the baby is going to eat at food. When you die, Makazi, when you are, you reach your grave, Makazi has to be there with water and the seed to bless that grave. That's why we said... Seed and food systems. We are not people who just talk food security. We want seed and food systems security. As indigenous forests come under threat from development, Zomola Mopo has been taken on the task of restoring trees, which of course starts with seed. And we put those seeds in a broken basin, and the seed of tree comes out. We nurse them, as the Makazi of Zomalampo, they always said, these trees are their baby. It's like they gave birth to them, they have to take care of them. I mean like the seed work. You know, on the one hand, it's because the threat of diminishing diversity is so real that we're starting to see it in our faces. You know, where we are. For example, like off the top of my head, only eating yellow bananas. When in fact, there are blue bananas and green bananas and red bananas and all 
kinds of bananas, like many, many different species of bananas. And diversity is a fundamental key to life. School children do not even know the wild fruits. They know apple, oranges, all these things which are packed in the shelves. Because we do this, we find this when we do dialogue. This comes through the dialogue. We go with the children to show them the importance of trees, the healthy ways of eating fruit from the wild. We started to take seed of the wild fruits and seedlings and started to give children to plant at their home or at schools. A young person, the lowest amount of trees is 400 seedlings of different trees. A Makazi elder who has trees in her nurseries, they reach 7,000 alone from seed. We are planting trees. On different sides of the country and from different backgrounds, Zayan and Makazi speak the same language. My knowledge, library of knowledge, are the elders. That's about the seed. It's a holistic, deeper way of interconnection. The seed communicates with the moon. Mupo send the moon to communicate with the seed to come and germinate. For us, it is the continuation of life. And those seeds cannot be there without water, as you are talking about water. As I said, the moon communicated and said, bring rain now. It's time for things to germinate and grow. Look out for Makazi Bompatelene's episode of For Water for Life. It could just change the way you view the world. Zion looks to the past to imagine a better future. She was about 10 when apartheid ended, but her parents were among those forced out of District 6, a culturally diverse urban Cape Town community that was dismantled under the Group Areas Act and declared a white-only area. And the forced removals in the Group Areas Act specifically really, really severed our memories and severed our cultures from learning the stuff. We weren't able to learn this at the feet of our grandmothers or, you know, like being told not to build these tools or do these things and by our fathers, etc. There wasn't that connection. So we weren't able to taste each other's food or learn each other's recipes and share amongst one another. But the thing about humanity as well is that we are such communal creatures and we need each other so much, even though... So, but like everybody cares about food, man. Everybody's eating and actually everybody should be eating. But everyone is not eating, especially in South Africa. So how do we share these stories? For Zayan, connections can happen when we recognize our disconnection with the old ways. The disconnection that we inherit, that we grow up with, understand water comes from a tap through an irrigated system of these really antiquated piping systems that go to a water management center, you know, which cycles and sterilizes and treats water. Really, I mean, water gets put through some really terrible things. And the fact that we use water for our toilet system is very confusing during drought, you know, day zero times. Why are we even doing this to water? Just by simply opening up a tap and water coming to you, there's such a severing of cultural knowledge you know, of ancient indigenous knowledge. Because in Zion's world, water is not a dead, abstract thing. Water is not just life, but water is alive, and we can count it as such. 
You know, water in its nature saturates itself with all the different minerals of what it is surrounded by. And so when you're drinking sweet water that's come out of the mountain, it's been saturated and it's been energized, full of all of that wonderful, like, muti that's in the ground, you know, and in the mountain itself. So when we take up this water into our bodies, we are mineralizing our bodies. And we must remember this planet used to be mostly water. So that water, I mean, it's the same water that's still flowing. You know, it's the same water that's from now. It's the same water that's in my tears, that's in this river, that ocean. And you know, like the same water, the water freedom fighters in North America states and indigenous people and Native Americans are fighting for. All these waters are connected. They're all the same systems. And you might find that the indigenous knowledge systems of water around the world are so similar because that knowledge comes from water. But the truth won't change. I mean, the ultimate effect is that our world is very polluted. The world, you know, in many spaces is dying and our cultures are dying. This extractive nature that we've come through, I mean, we're just pulling every single element and every mineral out of the earth and any kind of trying to assert our beliefs one over the other. You know, it drowns out all of that inherent knowledge that is so freely accessible to all of us if we are just able to be with the land, to be aware, to go into a listening space, to, you know, reconstruct power in new ways, in new old ways, you know, and not center ourselves so much. You know, I think when I think of water, I think of all of this kind of thing. This is For Water For Life. That was the wonderful Zion Khan in Cape Town. So Viswa Kagetwani, also known as Gokomathlodi, I think in this conversation I'll definitely be speaking on my experience as Isangoma and someone who's working in the realm of spirit and intuition and things of those nature. Gokomathlodi is a traditional healer working in an urban space. How does she access bodies of water in the city? And what does water mean for her healing work? I mean, I think water, the most obvious and common ways that we understand and water comes into our practice is through the acts of cleansings, right? But these, of course, are questions for another episode. I'm Sigwetlane Pamudi. And I'm Kukule Tumshlomo. Thank you for listening to this episode. All of our podcasts are available at jojo.co.za. The series was made possible because of Jojo for Water for Life. Find us on social media at For Water for Life and share your water stories using the hashtag Listen to the Water. Because if you do, it could change your life. From the Jojo family to yours, we hope you enjoyed today's episode of For Water for Life. Whether you're looking for top quality storage tanks, water filters or other water solutions, Jojo has the product ideal for you. Discover our range at jojo.co.za and find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for all the latest product news and water-related content.